there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. At the outset of a question and answer period, I always need to say, first of all, that I don't know the answers to all these questions. I haven't looked at these questions at all. I will try to give you a brief answer. Obviously, time requires that. I will try to give you a scriptural answer. If I can't give you a scriptural answer, I might give you an Elizabeth Elliot opinion which is worth next to nothing, and you can discard that. But if it is a scriptural answer, then I would hope that you would be slower to discard it. I will just uh, zoom through these as, as fast as I can. It's, it's quite a pile. And actually, I think we have um, till what time, Kim? Uh, till till 3.15. Okay, that's a little bit over an hour, so I think we certainly ought to be able to get through the questions that we have here. That doesn't mean that I will be able to answer them all, of course. What are your feelings and thoughts about what the Bible says about women in ministry? More specifically, women as pastors and teachers. It always sort of amazes me and, and amuses me a little bit that so many questions will be couched with these words, what are your feelings and thoughts? Because, you know, my feelings about this have nothing to do with my convictions. Absolutely nothing to do with my convictions. If God were to ask me how I feel about submission to my husband, it would be a very different story than what I believe about submission to my husband. So that's not really important, is it, how Elizabeth Elliot feels or thinks about anything, if God has something to say about it. And it, it is very clear to me, I don't see how there can be any argument about the fact that the same order that obtains in the home also obtains in the church. God has vested men with authority. And we are to be subject to the authority that God has put over us, whether it is civil authority, biblical authority, God's authority, or those whom God has appointed as the authorities in our lives. Children are to obey their parents. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and a husband's obedience to the authority of Christ there means sacrifice. There isn't any way for a man to love his wife as Christ loved the church unless he is prepared to lay down his life. We women are given the liberty not to be in charge of things. But what happened back in the Garden of Eden? God had created the man first, and then he created a woman to be a helper, to have a helper's role, to meet a particular kind of need that God saw in that man. 
Adam was to be the initiator. Eve was to be a responder, a cooperator. Eve decided to take things into her own hands and upgrade her lifestyle and do what Satan said she could do, which was to become like God, to become gods. And so she decided to reject the given, which was to be human and to be a woman. And she took the initiative. She went ahead and suggested to Adam that they eat the fruit. And of course, she had already tasted the fruit and had not been struck dead. And so Adam thought this sounded like a good idea. And instead of digging in his heels at that point and doing what a husband is assigned to do, which is to protect his wife and to provide for her, he wimped out. And he said, well, you know, this is what the little lady wants. This is what the this is what we'll do. And the roles were reversed. Eve became the initiator. Adam became the responder. And things have been in a mess ever since. And they've gotten a whole lot worse in the last 20 years, thanks to the feminist movement. Why does God give men the authority? Because God has assigned them to be the representatives of Christ in the home and in the church. They are the visible representation of Christ. And you and I are the visible representation of the bride. These are visible signs of what? And what did I say about six times this morning? Invisible realities. And the invisible reality which is being enacted in the church and in the Christian home is the mystery of Christ in the church. This is why God gives authority to men and a subordinate position to us women, not because we're incapable, not because we're incompetent, but because we represent Christ and the church. And you can no more reverse those roles or equalize them than you can say, husbands, be subject to your wives as Christ is to the church. I mean, that is blasphemy. Christ is not subject to the church. We can no more reverse those roles of husband and wife than we can reverse the roles of Christ in the church. And we cannot talk about equality. We're talking about a harmony of differences, glorious inequalities. And it was for our freedom, for our liberation. And the wife, the woman who accepts this authority, and I speak to you single women as well, you don't have a husband at home to whom you must submit, but you do have leaders in the church who stand in the solemn position of being in the place of Christ, representing Christ to the people. And that is a high and holy honor, and it is my high and holy honor as a woman to recognize that authority and to be subject. Not because the man is always right. Thank you. We need, to, we need to be very careful about taking issue. Remember that Moses did not take the responsibility 
of getting into the ring with Corin and his crowd when they came along and said, who do you think you are telling us? You think you're God up there? Giving, you're, we're all holy just as you are. And Moses was the meekest man that ever lived, the Bible says. And instead of arguing about his position of authority over the children of Israel, he just said, will you meet me here tomorrow morning? We'll find out what God says about it. And what God said about it was very clearly demonstrated by a visible sign of an invisible reality. And the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and his rebellious crowd. So all that to say, this is what I believe the Bible says about women in the ministry. Now, since they said specifically women as pastors and teachers, I have to admit that there are some gray areas that I am not going to be able to sort out for you. The church has discussed them for centuries, and obviously I'm challenged often and accused of saying one thing and doing another. And I think it's a very legitimate question when people say, well, what in the world are you doing up there if you're not supposed to be teaching? Paul said that women were to keep silence in the church, but it was Paul himself who did allow women to pray and to prophesy. And prophesying in the New Testament sense does not mean foretelling the future. It means building up and encouraging the church. So I trust that I'm not out of order in building up and encouraging the church. When I'm asked to speak in a mixed group in a church, now you see, this is not a church that we have here. We're a bunch of believers. We happen to be meeting in a hotel. And there are a few men present at the very back of the room there. But this is not a representation of the mystery of Christ in the church in the same sense that the local church body is. But when I'm asked to speak to a local church body, Number one, I never speak in a Sunday morning church service. I don't want to. I don't want to be in that position. And I think this is the place where the word is to be proclaimed and the sacraments administered. But if I'm asked to speak, for example, to a Sunday school class that's mixed or Sunday evening service, I will do so under the authority of a man. There must be a man in charge of the meeting. And when I do so, I am under the authority of Christ. I'm under the authority of the word. I'm under the authority of my husband. And I'm under the authority of the man who represents Christ and turns over to me for a limited period of time this position in the pulpit. I could be wrong. I'm just telling you this is what I believe. I think it's okay. But I do not, for one moment, subscribe to uh, the ordination of women to the, to the pastorate. <clears throat> I'm having difficulty forgetting former things in my life, especially relationships, counting them as loss for the sake of Christ. To wholeheartedly follow Jesus and do his will, I know to be the very best thing to do with my life. Last evening's talk was very helpful in terms of practical steps to take to becoming devoted to Jesus. My question is this, are there ways to help my help me persevere, I think it says, through the process of submitting my will to God's will. How do I rejoice in the midst of pain and failure? How can I run the race and enjoy it? I know this is really three questions. <laughs> and a lot of you probably have taken advantage of your one piece of paper to do that. Um, 
I would refer you to the last few verses in the book of Habakkuk. You remember he talks about if even if the fig tree is not bearing any fruit and even if the vines are dried up and there's no cattle in the stall, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I think we need to get clear the distinction between enjoying something, in other words, feeling good about it, feeling happy about it, it happens to be according to my tastes and preferences, and choosing to rejoice. And Habakkuk was not in a situation which, humanly speaking, would make anybody happy. Everything had fallen apart. Nothing was working. He says, yet will I rejoice. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And it is not incompatible with sorrow. Janet Erskine Stewart said, a small seed of sorrow can turn into a great tree of joy. And when we learn to offer up our sorrows as material for sacrifice, there is joy that comes immediately. Now, that doesn't mean that the sorrow is gone. See, this is one of the great paradoxes. And Jesus' words were full of paradox. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Does that make any sense at all from the standpoint of the world? Of course not. But Jesus was always saying things like that. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? If you are unwilling to lose your life for my sake, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it, he says. And if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Those paradoxes are just, there are dozens of them in the Bible. So joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. They are graces which are given to us. The sorrow is not sinful as long as it doesn't turn into bitterness and resentment. You know, Paul said, we sorrow, but not as others who have no hope. So the ways to help you persevere through the process of submitting your will to God's will, the simplest answer that I can give you to that, and this I would hope you will take home with you, all of you, if you're just overwhelmed with everything you've been hearing this week and you think, oh my goodness, I don't know where to begin. I can't possibly do all these things I'm supposed to do. God is only asking you to do one thing, you know. I only have one thing to do, and that's the will of God. And the will of God is going to come to you before you go to bed tonight in some form. God is going to give you an opportunity to die to yourself in some form before you go to bed tonight. But the answer to this question, how can you help me persevere through the process of submitting my will, you only have to submit in one thing. I don't know what that is. God does. You do. It doesn't have to be a process. It is obedience now in this thing. Maybe God has spoken to you about an apology you need to make to somebody, a letter you need to write, a closet you need to clean out, a child that you have not been teaching to respect you. Whatever the thing is that God is saying, do this, then just simply do it. And the next step will be made clear. 
That's what discipleship is about. When God told Noah to build an ark, what did Noah do? Build an ark. No matter what the neighbors had to say about it. Didn't make any sense whatsoever. He did the one thing. And that whole list in Hebrews 11 is people who did things, not people who felt good about anything. We don't have one syllable in there that tells us how anybody felt. How do you think Abraham felt when he was climbing that mountain to sacrifice his son? There's nothing in the Bible about that. The question is, what did he do? What did he do? Well, he did what God told him. And you do one thing that God tells you, and he'll tell you what the next thing is. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>